Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. That is on page 1008 in your pew Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me ask you to pray with me this morning. Our Father, we have heard your word, and now we need to receive it. I pray that the word of God would be received by faith today by all the faithful, and by those who have not yet come to faith, that we would today receive the word implanted which is able to save our souls. And I appeal to you, our Father, as the one who is alone responsible and able to make that miraculous thing happen, because I know that winsome words and oratory and other things will not prevail. But the Spirit of God can prevail and does prevail. So I pray today that you would be at work and that you would cause your word to bear great fruit in this church. And I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was never an athlete growing up, but I tried all the sports at least once, all the sports that were offered in my little school. So I, I, I did a perfunctory Uh, spring training and baseball. I did basketball camp. I did football camp. But, you know, as I'm going through that list, I'm like, I'm not skilled enough for baseball. I'm not fast enough for basketball. I'm big enough for football, but I'm way too pain-averse to play that. (laughs) So it looks like the high school band for me. So, uh, But, you know, it turned out that even my high school band had something in common with all those sports. There was still a painful training camp. Uh, I never really clicked with summer training camps of any kind. Um, They were a lot of work. They hurt. Um, But it's not just that it was too hot out there in the summer. It's not just that it was too strenuous or 
not exactly that it lasted too long or competed with the other things I'd rather be doing with my summer. It was, it was all that in part, but I never really clicked with those painful training disciplines of summer camp because what we were training for was never that important to me. I wa- it wasn't really consequential for me. It wasn't that I couldn't possibly endure the pain that the training imposed. It was that I did not see a good reason to endure it. Now, I think that's typical of the human condition, that you won't readily endure pain unless you believe there's something important that requires you to endure it. If the thing you're going to get is important enough, then you will endure the pain to get it. Now, our text in Hebrews that was just read is telling us that faith in Christ requires enduring significant pain. It's telling us that there's something to be gained that can only be gained by those who endure a painful process. So the person avoiding the painful process is also the person who fails to arrive at the gain that is in view. Faith in Christ is that process that requires pain. So to be part of the holy and righteous family of God in the new creation, that's the gain that's in view. And I'm wondering about you. I'm wondering if you've realized that faith in Christ that is held firm to the end requires a process of pain to get there. And do you understand why it is that way? Would you like to learn how better to hold your faith firm and to endure in your faith through hardship as is required? Our passage, I believe, can help you do that. And if you're someone here today who presently holds no hope of ever sharing in the gain of God's new creation, I also believe our passage can help you come to have that hope if you'll listen to it and seize it. Now, there's an outline in your bulletin that I commend to you, and the theme statement there says, Enduring faith in Christ is painful. But that pain is God's discipline designed to make us holy and thus prove that we are his sons. So first, we're exhorted in the first four verses that were read, to run faith's race with endurance. Listen again to verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the immediate context of the call for us to run the race with endurance is chapter 11 that we discovered last Sunday. Those heroes of the faith are the witnesses by which we're surrounded. They're not witnesses in the sense that they're watching us, and we better shape up. They're witnesses in the sense that their lives testify that God enabled them to keep the faith 
through hardship as they looked to a future reward. So every one of their stories, we heard a bunch of them last Sunday, is a testimony, it's a witness to the fact that God's salvation is a promise of future blessing. And it's to be held even though we don't yet see that blessing. It is the conviction of a salvation hoped for, and it's the assurance of a salvation not seen. And it's a salvation and a conviction, a promise that's tightly held despite enormous pressure to let it go. So according to chapter 11, it's better to be sawn in half or tortured than to be released from pain at the price of renouncing the hope of God's promised salvation. It's better to keep seeking the city which is to come, this better city that's built by God. So now, building on the memory of all that and the testimony of those who came before us, this author now gives us a little more detail about what it means to keep the faith with endurance. And to help us see it, he has invoked an image for us that's supposed to be familiar. It's the image of an athlete. You know, that Greek-speaking world was very familiar with the ancient Greek games. And so here, the image of a runner is brought forward. I think a little bit further down, there's a little bit of the image of a boxer too, but primarily here it's the runner. So he says, we should run unencumbered. That's what he says. Let's lay aside every encumbrance. Now, I'm not a runner, uh, but I've watched them run. And they <laughs> wears me out, you know. <laughs> but these runners, they like to run with as little clothing as possible. Shoes are helpful, but everything else tends to get in the way. You know, every year at the youth retreat, there's Tony out there and... <laughs> I don't even have to tell you, these shorts from 1975, you know, <laughs> nothing left to the imagination. But, you know, excess weight or restrictive clothing, runners like to get rid of these encumbrances. So you need to make no mistake what this author is saying. The thing that encumbers running the, the race of faith is sin. One commentator translates the thing to be laid aside as the sin which distracts, our version says, the sin that clings so closely. Another one says, the sin that so easily entangles. You get the idea. Now, why would we say that sin impedes faith? Well, listen, it's this. Faith requires intentional focus on what is coming, a promised end. That's the thing not seen, the thing hoped for. But sin, on the other hand puts a focus somewhere else, usually right here and right now. Faith is focused on final blessing, by definition. Sin is always lobbying for immediate pleasure. Now, what sin are we talking about? Is there a particular sin in view? Well, you, you know, I'm sure, that in Hebrews there is always a particular sin in view. It's the sin of turning aside or turning back from Christ. It's the sin of turning away from faith in Christ. And we call that apostasy. But here's the subtle part for you. In order to exhort us not to commit the sin of apostasy, of leaving Christ, the author knows he has to exhort us not to indulge any sin. Not to commit any sin. That's because every sin has the potential 
to be the first step off the path of faith and onto the path of apostasy. So we have to be vigilant about all sin because any sin pulls us away from persevering faith. That becomes more clear as you read the next line and we're told to look to Jesus and we see exactly what he did. Namely, Jesus ran the race of faith. You need to have that in your mind. Jesus was, in fact, exercising faith in God in his life. He ran looking to the finish line, looking away from the immediate things that he would have been happy to do. But he had a better end in mind. He wanted to get to the finish line, and so he did. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So if a believer only lays aside most sin, then whatever sin he's not laid aside is right there to be a distraction and an encumbrance to compete with him looking to the finish line. The believer has to look to the thing that's still ahead, the thing that's still not seen. It's in the distance. Sin always represents the threat of pulling us away from faith. You know, in in our little real recovery uh, ministry that we have, uh, one of the principles that we camp on is pervasive repentance. A guy comes into real recovery dealing with some besetting sin or another, and we say, you can't just deal with this sin. It doesn't work like that. You've got to deal with sin across the board. So it's like playing whack-a-mole. You can't win at whack-a-mole if you just pick one hole and kind of lean on that one. You've got to whack all the moles when they pop their heads up. And fighting sin is like that. You've got to fight... You've got to fight all the sin. If you want to run the, the race of faith and finish with Christ, you've got to fight sin. So we run, it says, looking to Jesus. And that, of course, means looking to him, looking to our connection with him as the one who enables and empowers our faith. who enables, provides for our ability to run. But it also means we look to him as the best example of somebody who did the same thing. So what did Jesus do as he kept the faith? Well, he endured the cross in favor of the heavenly reward, which was the joy set before him. He endured hostility against himself from sinful people, and he didn't grow weary or faint. His physical strength began to fail, but he remained strong in his commitment to endure hostility for the sake of what God had promised. And he resisted sinning because Jesus resisted turning aside from God's path for him. He resisted turning back from the cross, and he resisted all the way to the point of shedding blood. That's why that gets brought up in verse 4. Jesus resisted to the point of shedding blood. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ hung naked on the cross... Because it pleased the Father to crush him in order to save us. And so he endured beating and shaming and the loss of his life's blood on purpose. Because he desired the will of God. He desired the salvation of God's people, which was the thing promised. The redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross was his own act of faith in God's promise. God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Jesus bought into that promise. God promised to deliver his people from bondage and usher them into a land of promise. Jesus bought into that promise. He paid the price for sin for us. He suffered what we deserve as a just punishment. 
It was a painful price. It was a painful path. So for us, the pain of paying for sin against the holy God is now a pain that we will never have to experience. Praise God. The pain of eternal judgment has been taken away for those who are in Christ. But the pain of keeping faith in that promise until all is accomplished, which pain Jesus himself endured, is a pain we must endure with him. There is no faith without this pain. So when the Hebrew author reminds the church that they've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in their striving against sin, he makes a very telling point. Striving against sin requires exertion so hard it can make you bleed. Like a, like a runner with bloody feet. Like a boxer with a bloody lip. And keeping faith in God's promise in the midst of the world's hostility against it requires a readiness even to have your blood shed in persecution like Jesus did. Because his death was our redemption, it was also their persecution. To run with endurance, we must be prepared to bleed. We bleed fighting sin, and we bleed rather than forsaking Christ. Now, if we pick it up here in verse 5, we hear the Lord, through this author, begin to press the issue home with a slightly different metaphor. Listen again, verses 5 and following. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this author wonders, first of all, if his audience has forgotten what God has always said about how he loves his children. He reminds them of the proverb, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. says, God's children are not to think lightly of the fact that God disciplines his children. God's children are not to act all weary and all fussy when he warns them or even spanks them. Because God disciplines and chastises every single one of his own children. In fact, God's discipline is a defining mark 
of belonging to him. It is a defining characteristic of being in the family of God. It is a defining mark of being a Christian. He says, verses 7 and 8, It is for discipline that you endure. That means it's for the sake of what discipline finally produces in you that you endure. Namely, discipline from God is designed to conform you to Christ and to fit you for the new creation. That's the thing hoped for. That's the thing not seen. That's the promise which you believe and for which you endure. And that discipline is God treating you as the son that you are in Christ. He only does that for his own sons. Now, I want to encourage you, just as an aside, some of you not to stumble over the language of sons instead of sons and daughters. The NIV says in part of this passage, children instead of sons, and then says sons and daughters. God indeed has both male and female children of faith. However, I don't want you to lose out on a little cultural ancient Near Eastern angle not to be dismissed because in their context to speak of sons is to speak of the perpetuation of the family name and to speak of the legitimate right to possess a family inheritance because when he says in verse 8 you know if you don't have discipline then you're illegitimate an illegitimate ancient Near Eastern son has no inheritance and he's not in the family so God is treating you as his sons set to inherit And so he makes a comparison. He says, common sense and experience tell you that fathers discipline their own kids. The baseline is, no good father fails to discipline his children. And corollary, no good father ever attempts to discipline anybody else's children. I've known a few men who were just that stupid. (laughs) But you don't do that. Therefore, Any children not included in the father's discipline are not in that family. Whoever's kids they are, they're not his. That's a sobering word that we have to grasp. We're going to visit that a little further in the application. But just let it sink in that the painful discipline we're talking about is not optional, but necessary. Only God's children experience his painful discipline. Fatherly discipline, and all God's children experience his painful fatherly discipline. And he makes next what is meant to be an obvious comparison to show us how much better is God's discipline than ours. Obvious comparison between the discipline of earthly fathers and the discipline of the heavenly father. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater and from the well-known to the less known. Sadly, I am forced to explain this simple comparison because in our day, fatherly discipline is no longer well known. What passes for discipline many times is not painful. It does not produce correction. It does not result in respect. So the comparison feels kind of weak in our day. But let me just say to you that the comparison, the weakness is in our day and not in this comparison. Here's the comparison. Earthly fathers discipline us, he says, and we respect them. That's how it works. So he says, shall we not all the more, all the more, 
respect God for doing that? God is promising life by the Holy Spirit. We're disciplined by the Father of Spirits and we live. Earthly fathers, he says, disciplined us for a short time on the basis of their own best judgment. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was not so good. The point is, how much better is God's discipline? It's always good. It always aims at and it always arrives at us sharing in his holiness. We get to be like God. We get to be like Jesus because God disciplines us. This needs to be grasped. You need to grasp that discipline is by design corrective. It's restorative, corrective. It is never vengeful. It is not punitive in the sense of making somebody pay for what they did. God never makes his children pay for sin. I don't want you to miss the importance of that lest you impoverish the gospel. When could you ever effectively pay for your sins anyway? If you thought you could pay for your sins, you just underestimate your sins and underestimate the glory of God. That's all. Isn't that why hell lasts forever? You can't pay for sins and balance the books, and God doesn't try to balance the books that way. That's the work Christ has done for you. God is not exacting payment. God is raising children. He is shaping children. And he tells us all discipline shares this feature. In the short term, it hurts, and we don't like it. But it is aimed at the long-term benefit, the thing we're looking toward. I hope all you parents have figured this out. If it doesn't hurt, it's not working. If it doesn't produce sorrow and pain and correction, it's not discipline. But the comparison is, if a dad could give a kid a little pain and help him to be a little more obedient in the here and now, how much better is God's discipline? It hurts right now, but it always yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When he is done disciplining you, my brother, my sister, you'll be holy and righteous like Jesus. That's the end game. That's what God is doing. And that's why he calls you to endure pain. So what do we do with that? How shall we run the race of faith? Well, I would say this, first of all. It's so obvious you wouldn't think I'd need to say it. If you want to run the race of faith with endurance, you cannot run the race of saving faith with endurance unless you first have faith in Christ. If you're not in the race, you can't cross the finish line. So you need to be clear what track you're running on right now. Or to use the other image given by our passage, you cannot live embracing God's fatherly discipline If you're not God's son by faith in Christ. The Lord scourges every son whom he receives. He doesn't scourge as a loving father those who are not his own children. The unspanked children are not God's children. So I ask you, are you the child of God? Are you in the race of faith? I'd like some of you just to know that that is a yes-no question. It's not some kind of assessment as to how you think you're doing, how good you are at running. 
You're either God's child in the race of faith or you're not. So if you've never confessed your sin to God and cried out for forgiveness, you are not his child. If you've never trusted and rested in the work that Jesus Christ accomplished for sinners through his death on the cross, as over against all your efforts to be good or to do better, then you're not the child of God. If you've never turned from your sins because you've been renewed in fresh obedience through union with Christ by faith alone, then you're not the child of God. If you want to be the child of God, you need faith in Christ. If you want to be the child of God, you need to be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be born from above by God's power. Now, you cannot make yourself born again. And you cannot give yourself faith. Only God can do that. But you can be clear that the free gift of God, faith, exercised in power, is your only hope. And you can stop trying any other way. You can get clear, if God's opening your eyes, that the death of Christ is your only hope. Only His blood pays for sin. Only His power raises the spiritually dead, into a new life. Only his final triumph raises the dead and perfects finally all who believe together forever. We heard in chapter 11. So I'm calling on you, my unbelieving friend, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm I'm calling on you to call on him. I'm pleading with you to confess to him. I exhort you to ask for grace and mercy from him. He is willing to save all who call upon him. That's what the Bible says. But I'll tell you, he saves those who call on him in truth and not in pretense. And I'm just going to poke at some of you right now. Because the faith that connects with Jesus is a desperate faith that holds nothing back. That's its nature. You cannot earn your way into God's favor through making sacrifices. But if you believe, you will surely not balk at sacrificing everything in favor of having Christ. So if you're someone who feels like you've been seeking salvation... But God hasn't been answering. I remind you that the problem is you and not him. The problem is not a recalcitrant, stubborn Jesus who needs to be conjoled into saving you this time. The problem is a recalcitrant sinner, a stubborn you, who in truth will not let go of everything in favor of having Christ. You know, the so-called rich young ruler we read about in the Gospels was a man who encountered Jesus and apparently wanted Jesus to help him get eternal life. Apparently. But he went away from his conversation with Jesus sad because Jesus called upon him To give away all his possessions and follow him. 
Jesus wasn't selling salvation to that guy at the cost of his possessions, but that rich young man's heart was still given over to the life and the stuff that he loved. And Jesus was demanding all of him and not just part of him. So I say to you, come to Christ and be saved. Leave everything behind and come to Christ. You will become the child of God. He will love you and discipline you and give you the fruit of his discipline. Holiness, righteousness, his life. He will put you on the path of life to run the race of faith with endurance and you will cross the finish line. I want to say one more thing to some of you unbelieving folk today at the risk of just going overboard. There might well be some people here today who call themselves sons of God, children of God, but who in fact have no signs of God's refining, purifying, instructive discipline. So you show no signs of verse 11, of being trained by divine discipline to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You need to hear what the Bible says here plainly. Verse 8 says, If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate children means not in the family. It means no right to the name. It means no share in the family inheritance. It means you're not a Christian. So you're doing yourself no favor at all. This is you. If you name the name of Christ, but you don't bear the marks of Christ, namely a changed life, God's discipline, you're deceiving yourself if that's the case. It doesn't matter what you say you believe in terms of which facts or truths you affirm to be true. What matters is whether you have laid hold of Christ by faith. Indeed, whether Christ has laid hold of you and made you God's son. This passage tells you a clear way to see that. If you're without discipline, which does not mean that you're relatively more or less personally disciplined than somebody else. We're not talking about personal discipline. We're talking about fatherly discipline. We're talking about divinely imposed discipline. If you are without a life that is changing by the power of Jesus Christ, and that's something that God is doing, if you are without the fatherly correction of God by the Holy Spirit, then you are without a family connection. You will never get close to being in the family by pretending to be in the family. You will only come into the family of faith, the family of God, as it has been described. So I call on you for your own soul's well-being to lay aside any phony supposed faith that changes nothing about you in favor of running to Jesus Christ for the free gift of eternal life. Turn from your stubborn and selfish sins and give your life 
to Christ in complete reliance upon his saving work. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and it will show this way. Now, what else do we do to run the race? I say to us, we need to accept the pain of God's discipline as good. That's easy to say. Accept it as a good thing. You know, the Apostle Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. Temporary pain produces eternal glory. That's good. And I'm saying you have to call that good. You've got to endure and embrace as good the temporary pain that produces the eternal weight of glory. But what is the pain? Can we just talk about that for a minute? What's the discipline? Well, we already pointed out in the passage, really, two kinds of pain. First, there is pain from worldly hostility. That's what Jesus endured, isn't it? On every side, there were people who wanted him to fail, who wanted him to go away, and finally just wanted him to die. Not die on the cross for our sins, just die. They just wanted him gone. In order for him to keep faith with the Father, Jesus had to endure that hostile resistance and keep his face pointed toward the cross. Jesus had to endure the mockery, the physical abuse, in order to keep his faith to the end. This is something of which we, American Christians, have experienced almost nothing so far. We've only recently entered into a phase in our land in which we are somewhat mocked or slandered for our gospel fidelity. When we hold to the moral imperatives of the true gospel, now, for the first time, we kind of risk being mocked as silly or ostracized as haters. What I'm saying to you is, the Bible is insisting, you must accept the pain of that hostile resistance as a good discipline from God. And... It is time that you did, sooner rather than later, accept the pain of hostile resistance as a good thing from God. Some of you seeking a better political climate need to get your mind right about this. I don't need the gift of prophecy to tell you that you ought to expect a lot more hostility in the next decade or two. Increasingly, anyone who holds to moral absolutes. That means where some things are wrong for all people in all situations, those people will be rejected and even punished. The rubric they will use will be that we Christians are intolerant, but it will be the truth of God to which we cling, which they will seek to eradicate, even if they have to eradicate us along with it. Now, we, of course, need to maintain clarity that the gospel is our issue and not a laundry list of peripheral issues. But we also need to be clear, dear ones, that sin is not a peripheral issue to the gospel. If the category of sin is that which violates God's absolute morality is forfeited, then the gospel is also forfeited. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. 
As long as we preach the gospel, we have to talk about sin. So long as we talk about sin, the world will hate us for it and will increasingly be hostile to us for it. And I'm saying you must accept as good the pain of their hostile resistance if you are going to run with endurance the race of gospel faith. You can't let their pressure pull you off that path and say it's not worth it. It's worth it. You have to call that pain a good thing. God is growing children from this. And there's another kind of pain. That's fatherly discipline shows itself. Not just in worldly hostility, but the pain from resisting sin. I think that gets a little more personal. I think for now the societal hostility doesn't feel that personal. Because like I said, we haven't seen very much of it yet. But your sin is right there in your face now, isn't it? You have to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles or distracts you in order to run the race of faith. Now, are you clear? I already said why, but I'll ask again. Are you clear why you have to do that? The race of faith is the pursuit of a future blessing that has not yet fully been realized. It's the pursuit of a city that's not quite here yet. It's the joy set before us, but not Yet in our grasp, not fully, not finally. So the race of faith is choosing to set aside immediate joy in favor of the race that brings us to a better joy later, you see. Sin equals pleasure now. Faith holds out for pleasure later. Therefore, if, if, if you were a marathon runner, sin would be sitting down now and having some cold water and getting a foot rub instead of continuing to put one foot in front of the other toward the finish line with all its glorious rewards. You can't sit down. You can't have both. If you want the finish line, you have to lay aside sin as you go. You know, but doing that's not so simple. I get that. Sin does not wish to be laid aside so unceremoniously. That's why it entangles you. Every time you say no to a selfish, worldly, fleshly desire, it's painful. You suffer an actual loss in the moment, don't you? You're clear that there's an ultimate game, but in the moment it is a pleasure lost. A pleasure forsaken. You must accept the pain of laying aside sin... As a good discipline from God. The Bible's pretty clear about this. It's just that it's largely ignored. That's all. What does the book of Titus say? It says the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness. And worldly desire. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. So grace instructs us to deny ungodliness now in favor of the blessed hope later. And all I'm saying is that every time you deny ungodliness and worldly desire, it hurts. It hurts to turn from sin. It hurts to delay gratification. It hurts to have your sin pointed out 
so that you turn from it. It hurts to have the Word of God expose your sinful folly in a sermon or in a conversation with a brother so that you turn from it. It hurts to have the natural consequences from time to time of your sin teach you that you ought not to have done that and to resolve that next time you will not do that. It's all God's discipline. It all hurts and therefore you are tempted not to deny worldly desires and instead to believe the fantasy you're tempted to believe the fantasy that you can indulge worldly desires and also be on the path of faith at the same time. It's nonsense. God says you must lay aside your sins in order to run the race of faith with endurance. That's why you look to Jesus, both as the enabler of that kind of self-denial and as the supreme example of it. Nobody said no to sin better than Jesus. And nobody ever endured more pain to do it. The word of God is saying to you today that you must lay aside sin even though it hurts. Because the alternative is not to finish the race of faith. Every sin represents a potential first step off the path of faith and into turning from Christ. You must view all sin as the sin that leads to ruin. You cannot afford to pretend that there are dangerous sins and harmless sins. There might be big snakes and little snakes, but they're all poisonous snakes. Don't pick up any snakes. <laughs> Don't tolerate sin. Your tolerance for your own sin may well be the first entanglement that finally drags you to a fall off this path of faith. The Bible is saying to us simply that we follow Jesus. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered and he endured until he arrived at the goal and so did all the witnesses of the faith that came before us. And so must we. I'm saying to you, my brother, my sister, this is good news. It's not bad news. It's good news that the Lord disciplines the ones whom he loves. He sees to it that we stay on the path of life with endurance through his fatherly corrective Discipline. May God give us the grace to keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, as we run the race of faith with endurance for his sake. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give grace. Much grace is needed. That we would put one foot in front of the other in faith and not turn aside to this sin or that sin or this pressure or that pressure but run the race of endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for these things. Bless your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.